Good morning. Good to see you today. Good to have you here in the Lord's house. Well, there's a story of a man who went to his bank, and when he went into the bank, there was nobody in there. Isn't that a great feeling? No lines to stand in or anything like that. And he waited in line to, to make a deposit or to do something there at the bank, and the teller was on the phone, and uh, on her cell phone, not the bank phone, but her cell phone. And she sat there and was talking, and he waited for her to kind of maybe finish her personal business and kept talking to her, and, or she kept talking and kept talking, and he kind of just kind of moved around. You know, you've been there before. I kind of moved around, tried to give some social cues, and she just kept talking, and then he kind of made eye contact with her, and she would look up and, and go back to talking and go back. And finally she said, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to go. There's a customer who's interrupting me. Now, as crazy as that sounds, you've probably seen a similar situation somewhere before where, where you felt like you were interrupting someone when their job was supposed to be taking your order or asking you what you need. You've probably been there before. You've probably been somewhat similar situation. It's, and when that happens, it's like that you've entered their world and you were a burden to them. When their literal job was to satisfy the customer, it was to, do, uh, to please the customer in some way. In fact, it's so rare nowadays to get what we would call excellent customer service that when it, that's helpful, that when I come across it, I make sure to tell them that that was a great job or they did well, or if I come across a manager, I'll let them know that as well, because their employees' hearts are right, they're serving for the right reason, and I was not a burden to them with what they were supposed to be serving me with. Today, we get into 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In the first three chapters, we see that Paul was very gentle and encouraging with them. And today, we get into the situation at hand, why he's writing them, what they need to hear. And so some of this sermon might not be easy to hear because it's the subject of pleasing God. Pleasing God. When we serve God with the right heart, God is not a burden to us. Sometimes we run the risk of serving God out of some type of, I think, a negative obligation. Sometimes we view pleasing God as a burden. And when we do that, we are missing the point. Pleasing God is part of us growing more and more in the image of Christ. So today we're going to look at chapter 4 to see what God says about this subject. Look at verse 1, chapter 4. He says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you recede from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, concerning brotherly love, we, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. 
But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we just sang that you are the king of our hearts and many times we have to put you back on that throne. Sometimes we take you all from time to time. And as we look to please you, that you would show in our lives the changes we need to make. Some of us will have different struggles than others. Some of us will have different victories than others. And some of us will need grace and compassion from other people. So, Father, as we look at this passage today, I pray, Lord, that you give me the words to speak, that they reflect uh, your intention in your word as you spoke to us, and that you fill me with your spirit today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we jump into our sermon points, the, the first two verses kind of set the scene for this section. He says in verse 1, Finally, then, we ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more, that you continue to please God. The Thessalonians were a good church, but he says continue to please God. See, there's more than in being a Christian than just being saved. Uh, once you received the gift of salvation in Christ, you are then to walk now in a certain way and live a life now that pleases God. And the good news is you're not on your own with that. God gives you the grace to do so. He gives the Holy Spirit to help you in your weakness. Because a saved heart is a changed heart that should ultimately lead to a changed life. And one of our life's aims as Christians is to please God more and more. So Paul then reminds them what they had already instructed them. So he says in verse 2, For you know that what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So I'm going to give you today the first of four ways that we see in this scripture, in our culture that we live in, that we should please God. The first of four ways that we should please God. Number one, we have to be constantly developing self-control. Developing self-control. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. It is a, a guarantee that in some way that you're being made in the image of Christ. And where we see in this church, in the Thessalonian church, and in our own culture where we see sometimes a complete lack of self-control is often in what he talks about here with these personal relationships. He says in verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. So, so part of God's will for your life is, it tells us right here, you always wonder what God's will for your life is. Well, one, one thing for one of God's will for your life is to be sanctified. What does that mean? It means to grow in holiness. It means to be made more into the image of Christ. Part of God's will for your life is to become more and more like Jesus. Okay? And one of the big obstacles that the Thessalonians had with them being like Jesus was that they had a problem with what he calls sexual immorality. He says abstain from it. Now, in their culture... 
to worship at their pagan temples with their pagan gods. You had to commit indecent acts to worship. It was part of the culture. Now, we're not that far yet in our culture where that's the kind of thing that you have to do, but it's kind of close. If you're an alien and you were plopped down onto this world and you just observed people and had no idea what God's plan for relationships was or what husband and wife relationships were, you certainly would not learn it from our culture. You would be confused. Because in our culture, in the Thessalonian culture, when it came to romantic relationships, anything went. Anything goes. That's how it was then. That's how it is now. But that's not how the Christ follower is to live. And he, Paul explains himself. He says that by controlling yourself, you become more like Jesus, which is a huge goal of your salvation, controlling your desires. And you can expand this outside this idea of relationships. You can, you can expand into all sorts of things, exhibiting self-control in your speech, exhibiting self-control in your spending habits and your life decisions. For you, it may be one of these things where to grow in self-control, maybe you just don't comment on that Facebook post. Maybe you just don't spend that thing, that dollar on that thing that you need that you don't really need. Maybe it's something different in your life where you you need to grow in your self-control. He says in verse 4, make sure, he's telling the Thessalonians, that each one of you know how to control his own body and holiness and honor. So when we do this, we, we show honor to our bodies that God created. He created our bodies. He created how it works, how it's supposed to be. Anything else is outside the will of God, but where the world lives. Look at verse 5. He says, the world is in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. What he's saying is a, a society that doesn't know God is going to look like this. Society that knows God will not look like this. And if you looked at our culture, what would you think? Would you think we know God or not? You would think we did not know God. Now, we're not perfect in this area. Christians will sin in this area. But our life as Christians, as you track our life and our behaviors and the way we live our lives, it should not look like the world's. There should be progress. The Holy Spirit should be convicting you. And we should not let the passion of lust control us in any area of our life. We should allow the Spirit to bridle our temptations and let the Spirit control us. Now, he says in verse 6 that some of these people were sinning with other families. He says in verse 6 that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and saw they warned you had couples interacting with other couples. And he said, listen, that's not right either. He says, in fact, the one that is being hurt, God will avenge them. Verse 7, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God. Who gives his Holy Spirit to you. See, we don't get to decide what's right and wrong in our culture and what's right and wrong for us to do as people. God's word tells us. And not only does God's word tell us, it says right here that the Holy Spirit tells you as well. Again, many times we will sin in this area, but we please God when we develop self-control. So it's an area that the young church in Thessalonians needed, number one, and that we need to. Number two, also, we develop 
friendly love. Develop friendly love among others. Look at verse 9. He says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. They have been doing a good job in loving one another. He says, For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Now the root for this translation, the word love, it actually means from the same womb. And this is where we get the term brotherly love, right? Much like twins coming from the same womb. But the meaning also has an idea of friendship, like brothers. If we were to please God, we were to be consistently developing friendly love for one another. And whenever the Bible talks about putting others first, which the Bible does, Jesus first, putting others first, I feel some like times I think we need to give a little caveat here. Uh, this is not an invitation to be in some type of abusive friendship, some type of abusive relationship where you just roll over and let someone take advantage of you because you're putting them first. We all have people in our lives who from time to time might exhibit what we call toxic behavior. That time it might maybe us. We might be the ones sometimes that are that way. But for someone who really is in this situation, this behavior is just the tip of the iceberg of what you would call a perpetual sinful life. Look at Paul told the Corinthians in chapter 5. He says this. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church you're to judge. You might say, well, pastor, that doesn't sound very Christian-like. Well, I don't know what your definition of Christian-like, but it's God's word. It's what the Bible says. That's where we get our definition of what's loving and what is Christian-like. Now, what he's talking about here is a person who claimed to be a Christian who had no fruits of it. It isn't that they one time got drunk or they one time were sexually immoral or one time swindled someone. This is their whole life practice, doing these things. And he says, if you have someone who claims to be a Christian, who's living a life like this, he says, you need to not associate with them. Not because you want to be mean to them. Not because you're trying to hurt their feelings. But because that is what loving someone like that looks like. Let me explain. Sometimes loving others means distancing self from them. In hopes that they will repent. In hopes that they will turn to Jesus. There are people that God puts into your life, and then there's people that Satan puts into your life who will disrupt your life. That doesn't mean we, we ignore them, we might distance themselves from, our, from them, but we still pray for them, and we still love them, and we treat them lovingly just like a family. A middle school teacher asked her class to write some imaginative definitions of a friend these were some of the descriptions he received. One said this, a friend is a pair of open arms in a society of armless people. A friend is a warm bed sheet on a cold and frosty night. A friend is a mug of hot coffee on a damp, cloudy day. I would say a friend is a nice cold glass of lemonade on a 115 heat index day, right? <laughs> a friend is a beautiful orchard in the middle of the desert, and a friend is a hot bath after you have walked 20 miles 
on a dusty road. See, being a, being a friend doesn't mean you're just nice. Being a friend means that, that, that you are doing what it takes for that person to, be, to know Jesus Christ. It's not just being nice or being polite. It means that you put yourself before them and you work out to the best of your ability any issues knowing full well that the person you're called to love, the person you're called to serve may never reciprocate. May never reciprocate. But that's what is a healthy, friendly love. Think about brother-sister relationships you have. You don't always get along with them. Maybe some of you do, right? But you never quit being being your family. Sometimes there's a distance. Sometimes there's a closeness. But when you love them, you tell them what they need to hear when they need to hear it. And you never quit praying for them. So number two, develop this brotherly, friendly love. It's not this idea of just being nice, although that's part of it. It's being real with them. Third, develop quiet living. Develop quiet living. Some of you are like, praise the Lord, that's in the Bible. Look at verse 10b. We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Verse 11. To aspire to live <coughs> quietly and to mind your own affairs. Did you know that when you tell someone to mind their business, it's in the Bible? Mind your own business. First Thessalonians 4.11, it's right there. That, 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 that's what God's called us to do. He's called us to mind our own business. He's called us not to get involved in different things and stir up dissension and cause problems and and do this or do that. He's called us to mind our own business. Now, if you didn't read the Bible, you may never know that was in there. Your ambition as a Christian is to mind your own affairs. This has the idea of being still. It has the idea of being at peace or being silent. The Christian should be the most at peace person in the world. Right? When you're around a Christian, they should put you at ease. They should put you at peace, but that isn't always what happens because we're sinners and we live in a world that's fallen. The Thessalonian church had a bunch of people who were busybodies. That's God's word, not mine. Literally is God's word. And they were disrupting the church. And why did this happen to the Thessalonians? It happened because they weren't working. Now we'll get to that in a second. Look at 2 Thessalonians 3. He says this. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. God has created us to be busy. So if we're not busy doing something good, we're going to be busy doing something what? Bad. That's why he's told us to not be idle. We're to be quiet, so just between being quiet and being idle. They walked in idleness. They had free time, and free time is what caused a lot of their problems. They, had no, they, didn't, they quit their jobs. We'll talk about that in a while. They didn't quit because the government paid them or anything like that, or they didn't want to work. They, we'll get to that in a second. They quit their jobs, and then they had nothing to do. So they started causing problems in a, what was a good church because they had idle time. During World War II, the United States government became concerned that a number of German spies were operating in America, sending information back to Germany 
regarding the war plans and they were giving out specific troop and ship movements and things like that. So to keep them from hurting the war effort, the Office of War Information, they launched this national campaign. And the slogan was this, loose lips sink what? You know it, sink ships. That's where it came from, World War II. Loose lips sink ships. It was a warning for people to not repeat information that might be damaging or deadly if it fell into the wrong hands. And when we are idle, how often do we find ourselves being tempted for our lips to be loose and our ships to be sunk? We may not realize it, but we're always in a spiritual war. When we find ourselves with free time, how do we use it? Get on the phone and talk for two hours and, or text for a while and talk about this or talk about that. Are we sinking ships or are we building the kingdom? So that's number three. Develop a quiet life. Develop quiet living. I tell my children this all the time. I say, listen, I'm supposed to be developing a quiet life. So no more yelling or screaming in the house. Right? Develop a quiet life. Number four. This is somewhat related to number three, develop work habits. Develop work. Some of you might say, well, Pastor, I've worked all my life and I'm retired now. Well, your job's not done. Look what it says. Second half of chapter, of verse 11. To work with your hands as we instructed you. Verse 12. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now the main reason that the Thessalonians, some of them, had quit their jobs and had become gossips and had become busybodies is because they had a false understanding of the imminence of Christ's return. Jesus said he could come back at any point, and so they believed it. And he still could come back at any point. He could come back right now in the next day, in the next minute. But they assumed that since he could come back at any point, what was the point of living? What was the point of working? What was the point of doing good? So many quit their jobs and some even built little uh, like uh, beds on their roof waiting for him to come back. So in their zeal to be with Jesus because they were suffering and they were being persecuted, they kind of just forgot about the life that God had given them and they were being idle and they were causing problems while they were waiting for Jesus. Sometimes I think we can fall into this error of thinking. Perhaps we lose sight of what it is we're supposed to be doing. That's what happened with the Thessalonians. In the midst of persecution and just wishing Jesus would come back, they lost sight of their mission. This is why they started to gossip and cause problems. And this is why Paul was writing them. And it all could have been avoided if they had something to do. I believe that's why the shutdown period we had in the pandemic most of last year especially before the vaccine was out, why it was so difficult for so many people. It's one of the reasons why I think so many people seem to have lost their minds during the pandemic. You know what I'm talking about. They're, they're different now than they were beforehand. Many people had nowhere to go, nothing to do. It's why everybody did home improvement projects, why lumber prices went sky high. No work to do. God has created you to work. He's created you to create and he has created you as a born-again believer to work for his church and his kingdom. Your job as a disciple of Christ never ends. 
So we are to develop work habits that have a mission focus for the kingdom of God. They quit trying to reach people in Thessalonica. They just waited for Christ to come back. And when they quit trying to reach people in Thessalonica, they started sinning. They started getting involved in morality. They started getting involved in gossip and being a busybody. And they started having all these issues creep up because they lost the mission of the church. That's what happens. That's what happens to good churches. When good churches have problems, when they have fighting and enmity and splits, it's because the people lost the mission of God. They lost what they're called to do. They worried more about this or about that or this offending them or this hurting them or that person doing that or this person leaving. They were sinking ships one after another. Don't ever forget that God has created you to work. Yes, in real life, yes, in real jobs, and when you retire, you earn it. But even if you're retired, God has created you to continue working for the kingdom. This will please God. There's a man named Timothy Stackpole. He was a New York firefighter who in 1998 was severely burned. In fact, he was so burned, they, they, after he recovered, they really, his family and friends said, uh, you don't need to go back to the force. You just need to retire. You get a good little kind of paycheck kind of thing and just retire comfortably. But he didn't want to. Why? Because he was a firefighter. That's what he did. He didn't retire. And three years later, on September 11th, 2001, you know what happened. It's almost 20 years. It's almost 20 year anniversary is coming up of that horrible day. He was one of the firefighters that ran into the second tower trying to save the people. Of course, you know, the towers fell. Many good police officers, many good firefighters lost their lives on 9-11. And Timothy Stackpole, who survived a fire three years earlier, went back in and it collapsed and he took his life because he knew his calling and his calling was to save people from danger. As a Christian, one of your primary callings is to save people from an eternal fire. We are all on the road to hell. That is our default path. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's where we're headed. We all deserve it. But Jesus has stepped in and saved those who will believe. And our job is to tell the gospel so others can be saved, just like people who need that. Just like Timothy Stackpole, who went into a, a building that was burning, that he had no idea whether it would collapse or not. His job was to save people because that's who he was. He was a firefighter to his dying day. We are Christians fighting an eternal fire to our dying day. That is our mission. That is our mission. God's not going to maybe necessarily call you to do dramatic things like this. But it's still, as a disciple of Christ, yes, you come to church to get filled from the word. Yes, you come to worship the Lord. Yes, you come to, to grow. But you also come to make disciples. And you come to rescue the perishing. Rescue the perishing. Many people who went to work that day, 3,000 or so people went to work on 9-11. None of those people who died went to work thinking that they would not go home that day. And there are people all over Monk's Corner, all over Brooklyn County who get up every morning and have no idea that if they died that day, 
they would not see Jesus. Have you seen all the construction up and down the road, all these houses that are coming here? All, you know, we get in the Publix in Monk's Corner. Can you believe that? I, I remember when we got a Chick-fil-A and a Starbucks and all these places, right? People are coming from all over the world. They need to know Jesus. And as Christians, our job is to tell them. And when a church is committed to the mission, we're not going to be idle. We're not going to be busybodies. We're not going to have problems with other sins. We'll sin from time to time and we'll repent. But when we're stuck on the mission of God, we'll reach people and God will bless. Heavenly Father, as we close our time together today, we thank you for what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. And we thank you for the grace that you give each and every one of us. And Lord, we talk about lost people and we're not better than them. There's no idea of we're saved. It's the only difference. Before your grace, we would be the same way. So right now, Father, I pray that you start working in the lives of those who need you, who maybe are searching for some significance. You would draw them to yourself, and you would put people in our place, in our path, that we could invite to church, that we could have a gospel conversation with, that we could share the truth of Jesus with them. Lord, if there is one in here today that's never placed their faith in Jesus, that today they would come down and make that decision today. Father, maybe there's one in here today that has been convicted about something they're doing. Maybe they've been idle. Maybe they've been busy in the wrong way. Maybe they've had no direction in their life and they find themselves doing different things they shouldn't be doing. That you would show them what they can do to live an impactful, fruitful life for the kingdom of God. Lord, we love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.